The FT. Hello. Where does Britain's defeated Labour Party go next? Has anything really changed in Cuba? And after the launch of Apple's iWatch, what does the future hold for Fitbit, maker of those annoying bracelets that track people's jogging and sleeping? I'm Henry Mance, and this is Best of the FT podcast, the show that is always a grand coalition of the Financial Times' audio highlights. We start with the British election. Last week's vote was meant to show that the rules of UK politics had changed. How wrong we were, said the FT's Robert Shrimsley. What this election showed is that the fundamental rules of politics haven't changed. And the two most fundamental of all those rules is if you put your party in the hands of somebody the public does not believe is prime minister material, you cannot win. And the second is if you do not look like you have a record for economic competence, you cannot win. Labour ticked both those boxes and we should have realised The conventional wisdom is that Labour will return to centrist policies. The bookmakers think its next leader will be a bit more like Tony Blair. Not necessarily, said Robert Shrimsley. The history of leadership elections suggests that early favourite status is not a fantastically helpful position to be in. I think the Blairites will have crystallised everybody who doesn't think of themselves as a Blairite. So even those on the rightish side of the Labour Party are going to have to look to move beyond Blairite language, new Labour. These are phrases they need to get past. They also need to solidify around a single challenger. At the moment, you've got... Chukamuna, you've got Liz Kendall, you may have Tristan Hunt, who else knows? I think there's going to be a bit of jockeying for a while. There is definitely going to be a rehashing of the issue of whether they are trying to become a more aspirational party, pull in more voters of the kind they failed to attract this time. But I don't think you can take it as read that the Labour Party is yet ready to return to the embrace of Blairism. Tony Blair's real strength might not have been ideological at all. The man was a brilliant political communicator, a phenomenally talented political strategist, and he assembled around him some other very talented political strategists. And the first thing they've got to do when they choose their leader is pick someone who is as close as they can get to being that gifted a communicator, that charismatic a figure, the kind of person that voters actually want to believe in. David Cameron's major headache now is not the Labour Party, but other governments in Europe with whom he wants to renegotiate Britain's membership of the European Union. What exactly does he want? The FT's George Parker explained. He really wants to be able to show the British people that something's changed in our relationship and uh, there's a lot of detail in that. But I think he essentially wants to show that Europe has got the message out that needs to be more open with fewer rules. He wants to do something about immigration. He wants to limit the access of British welfare payments to migrant workers. He wants to get Britain out of the totemic ever closer union commitment that was in the founding Treaty of Rome for the European Union. And he wants to give national parliaments a greater say over EU law. So that's the package of measures. But essentially, he wants to be able to show to the British people, look, something's changed. The European Union's got it. And then I'm absolutely convinced at the end of that process, he will campaign for Britain to stay in. Even if Mr Cameron gets that package, some Conservative backbenchers probably won't like it. The moment he comes back from Brussels with this bit of paper and says, this is the deal, the cries of betrayal will be in the air from many of the real hardline Eurosceptics. But I think it'd be easy to overdo that. I think the number of Conservative MPs who were likely to campaign for a British exit out of the 330 newly elected Tory MPs, I don't think will number much more than 50 or 60. I think, although the Conservative Party now is a is basically a mainstream Eurosceptic party, I think the majority, the vast majority of Conservative MPs will go along with whatever David Cameron negotiates. Now to Cuba. President Raul Castro has met the Pope, the French president has visited Havana and the US government is preparing to lift its embargo. But John Paul Rathbone explained that not that much has actually changed on the ground. 
I think what Obama's announcement on December 17th has done is unleashed a sense of hope and also expectation. These are intangibles, but you can feel it, I think, on the streets of Havana, certainly compared to when I was there last year. As to what has actually changed, I think you could say the food is better because private restaurants are being encouraged. There's a sense of hope. But that's actually about it. Businesses are still grappling with the external embargo imposed by the US and the so-called internal embargo of Cuban bureaucracy. But there are reasons to think that the Cuban government must change. Support from Venezuela is threatened because of the state of chaos in Venezuela. I think there's sort of an ideological acceptance that the market is an objective force in the economy. It's not necessarily always an agent of capitalism. And there's also actuarial reasons. Fidel Castro and Raul Castro don't have many years left on this planet, just for actuarial reasons. And they give legitimacy to the revolution. And the next generation that comes forward won't have that same moral legitimacy. I think once you go forward, it's very hard to go back. That's not to say that uh, the process will be fast. In the Cuban case, the head may want to go ahead and the feet may want to go ahead, but there's this huge kind of midriff of bureaucracy and, and resistance. Fitbit is the Silicon Valley company that pioneered the market for wearable fitness devices. It had revenues of $745 million last year and is planning to raise at least $100 million by floating on the stock market. It needs more money to help it compete with Apple, Samsung and others which are entering the fitness wearables market. The FT's Tim Bradshaw dialed in from San Francisco to explain what advantages Fitbit still might have. It works with any device and so you don't have to be tied to one particular smartphone platform and it's typically a lot cheaper than a smartwatch. You can get a Fitbit that just tracks your steps for as little as, as $60 and they also are now competing in the sort of smartwatch space. They have this device called the Surge which was spotted on the wrist of one Barack Obama a couple of months ago and it tracks not only your steps but also your heart rate and your GPS for when you're going for a run. However, Fitbit's future growth is still not assured. I think there is this kind of question of, is this something where you need a, a standalone device or does it just become another app on your smartwatch or even your smartphone? I mean, one of the things I find interesting about how well Fitbit has been doing in the last couple of years is it's come at the same time as the iPhone from the 5S onward and most of the recent Samsung devices all have accelerometers, which is the sensor that tracks whether you're walking and how fast you're going, that can do pretty much the same thing. So as long as you have a phone in your pocket, it can arguably count your activity just as well as a Fitbit on your wrist. Finally, neuroscience is in fashion, thanks to the rise of mindfulness. It turns out that it may be possible to retrain our brains to make us better managers and better people. But the next time you see a PowerPoint slide with a picture of a brain on it, remember this warning, recounted by the FT's management editor, Andrew Hill. As neuroscientist Molly Crockett pointed out in her TED talk called Beware Neurobunk, more people agree with the findings of a scientific article with a picture of the brain than the same article unillustrated. Do you want to sell it? Put a brain on it, she concluded. We've already asked the FT's picture department to update our logo accordingly. That's all for this week. Please visit ft.com slash podcast to find full versions of all the shows featured here. See you next Friday. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.